Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you, and I welcome you to In Town, especially if you are visiting with us. I'm Brian, and I'm the pastor here, and we have other leaders and another pastor, Steve, who was up here earlier that would love to meet you if you're new. So please do take a minute to uh, be greeted on your way out. Now, we've taken this summer, as the kids are out of Children's Church, to spend a few moments talking directly to the kids, because you're not used to sitting and listening to a a 30-minute lecture. In fact, most adults aren't either, but I want to give you just a couple of things to think about, a couple of things to listen for in the sermon that maybe will help you as we go through. Have you ever been called a, a hurtful name, something that someone on the playground or something someone at school called you, and it was very mean, it was very hurtful? Those things kind of stick in your mind, don't they? And in fact, your parents probably remember things that they were called 20, 30 years ago that has stuck with them because names can be hurtful. Names have power. And I remember one of the names that stuck with me when I was in middle school, a couple of people started to notice that I didn't have much of an upper lip, that my upper lip was really small. And so very creatively, they called me razor lip. You know, didn't put a lot of time into that one. But it stuck with me. And I began to notice in pictures and notice in the mirror something that was different about me. And I began to be humiliated by that name. And for many years, I wouldn't smile for a picture because I thought it gave notice to the fact that my upper lip was quite small. Now, really, who cares, right? Who cares? about how big or small your lips are. But when you're a child, when you're a kid, when you're growing up, those kind of things really hurt and they stick with you. Now, we learn in this story about a man named Jacob. And his name had a lot attached to it. And it was something that was very troublesome for him because his name meant cheater. His name meant heel grabber because it said that he grabbed the heel of his brother Esau on the way out of, his, out, out of the womb and being born. And for his whole life, he's chasing after Esau. And so he has this terrible name, this identity that stuck to him until God at the very end of our passage renames him. And so I want you to think about this morning and maybe even take time to write it down or have your parents help you write it down. What would you like to be called by God? You have your name that your parents have given you, but what would you like God to name you? If there is a nickname that only God knows, that he has special for you, what would you like it to be? And then pay attention as Jacob is renamed. What does this mean for him? How does that change his story? And maybe this week, as you're going through your week, as you're falling asleep, maybe pray and ask God, to give you that name, give you a name that would give you meaning, that would make you sense your worthiness, that you're made by him, that you're loved by him. So think about that as we talk about Jacob and the way that he's being renamed by God. We're going through a series on Genesis for the next couple of weeks. We've been in it for quite some time, and this is our Old Testament reading. This is Genesis Chapter 32, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. 
in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, that group, the group that is left, may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go. For it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we can certainly empathize with Jacob. Many of us are are running. We can't stop running. We're running from a past. We're running from a parent. We're running maybe even from life itself. Or maybe we're running from you. We feel alone. We feel never at rest. We're perpetually fearful. We're perpetually worried. We're worried that someone will take what we have. We're worried that we won't amount to anything. We're worried that the names that we've been called will label us and stick with us forever. So, Father, would you come and liberate us from that fear? Would you come and rename us as your church, as individuals? Would you give us your name? Would you let us walk, therefore, in hope? Father, as we encounter this text, I pray that we would step into the story ourselves and be met by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard the name Brene Brown. She's not a a household name by any any means, but in the last few years, she's gotten a great deal of exposure. Now, she's a professor, PhD, but she's not at a top-tier school. Her research and her writing is, is aimed at exposing some very American myths 
Myths that say that vulnerability is weakness. And she invites people, particularly very powerful leaders, to lead with imperfection, to lead and model vulnerability, to expose their faults, and to be emotionally vulnerable with those people that they're in relationship with. So who's going to be interested in that type of research? Who wants to be invited to lead with your imperfections, to be vulnerable, to expose yourself and your faults to other people? Well, it turns out a lot of people. She was invited a few years ago to do one of the regional TED conferences, and she was invited to do a talk on vulnerability. And so she was greatly nervous because so far in her career she had done some great work but had flown underneath the radar. And here now she's going to be put on a stage, and she has to model vulnerability. She has to share her imperfections. And so she thinks that a couple hundred people are going to come to this room, and she's going to have to share who she really is with them. So she does her talk, and she goes home, and a few days later she gets a call from her friend because it turns out it wasn't just the hundred people in the room that she exposed herself to. But it was millions and millions of people because the video had gone viral. And the video is being watched and forwarded and posted on Facebook. And everyone seems to have this sense of liberation by watching this woman courageously and boldly share about vulnerability. So her book, Daring Greatly, sprints to the top of the bestseller, and she begins to be invited by Fortune 100 companies to come and do leadership training for their executives. Now, in explaining how vulnerability holds the key to emotional intimacy, she says of people who are able to develop this type of emotional intimacy with other people, she says there's two things that these people have in common. The first is a sense of of worthiness, that they engage in the world and with the world from a place of worthiness. Now, second is that they make choices every day in their life, choices that almost feel subversive in our culture. They cultivate creativity and they practice self-compassion. And then hear this, they have an understanding of the importance of vulnerability and the perception of vulnerability as courage. Vulnerability is, in fact, according to her research, not just her opinion, is the most accurate measurement of courage. These are the people that show up at a very, in a very open way, and she says, and I think that scares most of us. It scares most of us to do that. It also scares most of us to be in relationship with people who do that. We don't really gravitate towards that. It scares us. It makes us uncomfortable. And we've gotten to know a man over the last few weeks named Jacob who's also uncomfortable with vulnerability. Vulnerability doesn't come easy to him at all. He's competitive. He uses his strength. He uses his power, his wits. He uses leverage. And everything that he's wanted, he's gotten. He's been successful. He now has wealth. He now has children. But what we find in this story is that this posture that Jacob has that has made him so successful in worldly terms is a terrible posture for meeting God, for being intimate with God, for understanding who God has made him to be. Now, through external circumstances, he's been brought to a position of vulnerability. He hasn't chosen this. 
He's now faced with Esau's 400 men. He's afraid that he's about to be killed. And so he is very literally in a vulnerable position. And God comes to meet him. And the encounter is not pretty. And the results are any, not anything that we would really want. That's what you wanted to hear, right? Come to Jesus and you'll get something that no one really wants. Well, what are we going to do? After that long introduction, is we're going to step into Jacob's story. We're going to ask questions that he must have been asking as he was in that moment. What is your leverage? What is your name? And what is your hope? What is your leverage? What is your name? And what is your hope? Let's start first with leverage. Now, a little background. We met Jacob a few weeks ago when he was on the run from his brother Esau because he had stolen something very vital from Esau. And Esau had vowed to kill him. And so he lays down to sleep in this desert on the run, away from his homeland, on, on his way to Laban to meet him. He sleeps alone in the desert, and God interjects himself into Jacob's dream. And it's not clear immediately that Jacob gets the entire implications of this dream, but God shows him a stairway from heaven, a stairway that comes down. And what it's telling him is that Jacob's story matters to God, that Jacob matters to God. And that God himself stoops and comes out of heaven and meets Jacob in the desert with grace and with compassion. Now, 20 years later, he's married. He has children. He's gained a great bit of wealth. And yet, where do we find him again? In the desert coming out, he was alone. And now he sent his possessions and his family across the river, and he's alone. He's running from his past of deceit and trickery, and now it's finally caught up, for him, caught up to him. God had told him, go back to your father's land, but there's a problem because that's where Esau lives. He's vowed to kill him. And as Jacob approaches, he gets word that, Jay, that Esau has marched out with an army of 400 men. It doesn't sound much like a welcome party. Jacob sends his family ahead with gifts for Esau, hoping to uh, appease him. He's become a powerful man, but this is still big brother. This is the one who was out in the field. This is the one who was strong while Jacob stayed at home and was sensitive. He's big brother. He's the one Jacob's been chasing his whole life and running away from at the same time. So he sits down at the Jabbok River alone, and he's got to be wondering, He's got to be thinking, will this be the last night of my life? Has all of this running, has all of this wrestling, has all of this trickery, has all of this conniving been worth it? He sits down by the river and he prays. And the narrator of this story gives us this great amount of detail about Jacob's plans, about what he's thinking. And I'll what I didn't read, he gives us this great list and, and great detail about the number of goats, the number of ewes and rams and cows and donkeys and camels that he's going to send over. All of this seemingly insignificant detail. He gives us a great account, an elaborate account of his scheme to appease Esau. And we hear his conversation with his servants and the outcome that Jacob is hoping for. We get this long, many paragraphs, and then out of nowhere... With no introduction, 
we're told Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Wait, what? Where does that come from? What is he talking about? If you've seen Terrence Malick's film, The Tree of Life, it's like the moment where the film immediately changes and you go into this creation of the cosmos and it seems out of nowhere. It doesn't seem to fit the film. It feels disjointed. And yet, upon reflection, when you think about it, it really embodies the very heart of what Terrence Malick is saying in that film. This man, who's given no introduction, no fanfare, and seems unable to defeat Jacob on one hand, yet he can cripple him with a touch. He seems tremendously powerful, but yet at the same time he says that he needs to flee because it's daybreak. It's this very enigmatic figure. What are we to make of it? Well, what happens to Jacob? He's maimed, he's hobbled, he's crippled, but he hangs on and he says, bless me, bless me. I won't let go unless you bless me. Jacob's story, when you read about it, about Jacob through these chapters, it's all about blessing. It's all about getting the blessing. He wanted the blessing of his father, Isaac. He wanted his approval. He looks for blessing in Rachel. He looks for blessing of a beautiful wife that, according to him, only a wife with great physical beauty can give him fulfillment and meaning. And he looks for blessing from Esau. He looks for and he tries to steal security and authority and control from Esau. His life has seemed devoid of inner blessing, of inner wholeness, and he wrestles his whole life to get it, even with God. In chapter 28, God comes with this stairway in a dream, and he reveals himself to Jacob, and Jacob says, okay, well, if you'll do this, and if you'll do that, and if you'll do that, then I'll follow you. Then you'll be my God. He negotiates. He's always negotiated. He's always wrestled. He's always used his wits to overmatch others, to get inner blessing. But here, finally, at the edge of this river, he's overmatched. He's vulnerable. He's in a place of neediness. Now, in the sport of wrestling, you grapple to get into a superior position. You grapple with your opponent to try and get in a superior position to overmatch them. And if you don't have that, then you try to get away. But here, Jacob, in a vulnerable position, he holds on. This man can cripple him, and yet he clings to him. He won't let go. What is he looking for? Well, he sees something in this man. He sees something that his life has been about, that finally he's met the one person that can give it to him. The thing that he was looking for in Isaac What he was hoping for in Rachel, the thing he tried to steal from Esau, he now sees in this man, I will not let go of you unless you bless me. This man, who's beginning to sound something a bit like God himself, wounds him. He cripples him in his hip. He takes his leverage away. He cripples him in the very strongest place of the human body and the most vital place for a wrestler. This is where God literally and symbolically wounds Jacob. What is your place of leverage? What's your place of competency that you trust to give you power over life, over others, over God? 
What's that thing in your life, that place of leverage that you are working so diligently to try and get the blessing, that thing, whatever it may be, that you want so desperately? What's your leverage? Is it competency? Is it your reputation? Is it a skill set at work? Is it your theological sophistication? Is it your religious duty? If you behave, then you'll have leverage over others and over God. These are the areas that we trust for leverage, for control over life. And these are the very places that God must touch. These are the very places that God must wound us, cripple us even, in order for us to come into an intimate relationship with Him. Otherwise, you enter into Christianity, and it'll be one more thing that you'll use to protect your ego, to keep you from being challenged. You'll end up worshiping your present ego situation. You'll be seeking your personal advantage with this leverage. You'll be worshiping everything that's strong about you. And in fact, doesn't it seem that religious people are those that we've come to expect to be the most resistant to change, the most immune to critique, the most threatened by people unlike them, the most invulnerable people? Now, there's lots of things that I like about AA, about Alcoholics Anonymous. Some things I don't, but I'm basically pragmatic about it. It's helped millions of people. And if it works for you, if you're wrestling with addiction, then great, go for it. What I do love about AA is this, is that they lead with their limp. Just showing up to a meeting is saying very vividly, I don't have it all together. I'm in trouble. I need help. Just showing up is an act of vulnerability. It's inviting others to notice your wound, to see your limp, to read the scarlet letter on your chest. You're showing up and saying, please help me. And they come together without justifying, without proving, without defending their position. They come together not to argue about religious jargon, but to find healing and then to heal others that Jacob should be one of the patriarchs of the Christian religion, the Christian story, should be wildly encouraging, and it should be totally disturbing at the same time. He's a cheat. He runs from responsibility. He lies to everyone and even to God, and yet what does God do? God embraces him. God pursues him. God won't let him go. Jacob here is holding on to God, but really the story behind the story is that God has never let go of Jacob. The wildly encouraging thing about Jacob being one of our heroes is that our sin can never outrun God's grace. But it's also, if you're paying attention, totally disturbing because his conversion in this story is something that none of us would want, none of us would pursue. In an American context, Jacob is a loser. He's been reduced to begging. He's overmatched. He's desperate. And that's when he meets God. That's when he's open to what God wants to do with him and his story. He goes from being a wrestler to a limper. He wears this scarlet letter now very vividly, very literally. He's limping through life. His leverage is taken away from him. So the question is, what's your leverage? What's your leverage 
in life? And then secondly, what's your name? This passage is about wrestling, but it's also about naming. It's also about names. And this is appropriate because in our culture, wrestling is one of the very few places left where names matter. The Rock, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, the Junkyard Dog, the Undertaker. These are colorful names that are meant to say something about the character of the person and about their skill in the ring. There's also a wrestling name generator on the Internet. If you go, you can type in your name, and they'll give you your wrestling name. Mine is Fat Bull. That's fat with a PH. Wrestling names are important. They're meant to signify something. They're meant to be intimidating. Jacob's wrestling name was Cheater. Now, in the wrestling world, that may not be so bad because you can play the bad guy. You can be the guy that everyone hates. But it's not the name that you want to tell your grandparents. It's not the name that you want to be called by your banker. It's not the name that you want to be called by God. The text actually says it doesn't come out in English, but it says that this man came and Jacobed with him. His name was very prophetic because he's been constantly striving, fighting, wrestling, conniving his whole life. And finally, in desperation, he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And what does the man say in response? Jacob, what is your name? This is a callback to his deception of his father 20 years earlier because he goes into the tent with Isaac, his father, to secure the blessing And he's asked who he is, and he says, I'm Esau. What's your name? For us, in our culture, it's basically just revealing our parents' preference. Our four kids are just named things that we happen to like at the time. We still like the names, but it reveals more about our preference than anything else. But for Jacob, when he's said, when he's asked, what is your name? He's being asked, tell me who you really are. Lay yourself bare. Tell me your secrets, Jacob. Jacob, the conniving wrestler, the cheater, he has to own up, maybe for the very first time, who he really is. We've all heard sticks and stones may break my bones. Kids, but what? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Words will never hurt me. Maybe that's not in vogue anymore. I don't know. That's not getting passed around. But it's not true, is it? It's not true. Many times we would much prefer physical abuse than verbal abuse. Tell me how to just get beat up instead of you telling me something terrible about myself. It starts very young because fights among children almost always involve name-calling. Children instinctively know the power that a name has, that naming someone gives you power over them. Now, God has this power. God has this power to name Jacob, to rename him. And how does he use it? What does he call him? He renames him Israel. El means God, and Isra means conquer or prevail. But what is he saying here? What's the narrator telling us? Is he named God will conquer, or is it that he conquered and prevailed over God? 
it's actually a bit unclear because on one hand, just a few verses after this, it says that Jacob did in fact prevail over God, and yet he's the one that emerges wounded, and God ultimately has his way with him. So which one is it? Maybe we're not meant to choose. Let's look at both of those. Israel. First, you've wrestled with God and you have prevailed. That's what the text says later, that you have prevailed against God. But he leaves wounded and limping. He leaves with his life only because God has let him go, only because God has decided to not prevail over him. Maybe we need to rethink what prevail means because we think, well, prevail is to win. It's to accomplish what we want. It's to gather those things that we want. That's prevailing. But prevailing in the Bible, in this story particularly, looks more like being humbled. It looks more like losing something very important. He prevails against God himself, and yet then he goes to Esau in what posture? Utter humiliation. He, says, he goes, the text says, and bows before his brother. He runs ahead of his family and bows seven times before Esau, which in the ancient Near East is an act of utter humiliation. He prevails over God, and yet he's humbled, and he goes and runs to his brother and asks for forgiveness and tries to give him blessing. When you meet God, really meet God, you will be humbled. In fact, Christians, by definition, are wounded people. That healing comes through being wounded. Don't we sort of know this instinctually? I mean, Oprah wouldn't have a show or $11 billion if there weren't people with great wounds that were willing to come on stage and tell their story of how actually it was the best thing that ever happened to them. Jacob's wound isn't a source of shame, nor does it become his ticket to sympathy. Instead, what does it do? It opens him up to other people. The one who he saw as his lifelong adversary, the one who had prevented him, who stood in his way of getting the blessing, he begs to return the blessing to him. He bows before him. This is how Jacob prevails. He prevails in humility. He prevails by being wounded, by having his leverage taken out from under him. That's, that's prevailing in the Bible. But there's another way that we can look at this, and both, it too, is theologically correct. El God, Israel, conquer or prevail. You shall be called, God will conquer. But God didn't prevail against Jacob, did he? At best, it's a draw. Yet, we know that he can wound Jacob with a touch. The word signifies just barely brushing against, and yet he wounds him in one of the strongest places of the human body with but a touch. I saw God face to face, verse 30, and I lived. This is stunning. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark when they finally get the ark and they open it up and the melting faces and all of that stuff. Well, that's basically how an Israelite would think about coming face to face with God. It was a terrible thing to think about. They didn't even want to speak his personal name. That's how holy and powerful and terrifying God was, melting faces 
And so Jacob says, I met God face to face and I lived. You see, what we learn from this is that God can prevail over Jacob, but he chooses not to. He can kill him with a glance, but he chooses not to. The God of the universe, friends, allows men and women to wrestle with him. He allows you and I to take hold of him and beg for a blessing. The story of the Old Testament continues to unfold throughout the pages of Genesis and on forward tells us the story of men and women engaging with God verbally, personally. It tells us that he's with them, that he's patient with them, that he doesn't grow tired or weary when they call upon him, that he doesn't get angry and throw a fit when you doubt, when you have problems, when you second-guess him even, that he's patient, that he comes down to your level, to my level, and allows us to wrestle with him, that allows us to hold on to him. So what is your name? What is your name? Is it a terrible, hurtful, painful name from your past? And you've given your whole life to trying to forget it, to trying to run from it. Or maybe it's a triumphant name. Maybe it's the name that you've given your life to achieve and you've got it, but now you can't rest. Now you can't sit still. Now you can't let up for a moment because someone might take it. What is your name? God longs to give you a new name, a prosperous name, a beautiful name, an eternal name that no one can take from you. What would that new name be for you? What would it be like to be named by God, for that to be your primary identity? Well, we need to look finally and briefly. What's your leverage? What's your name? And what's your hope? What is Jacob's hope? What is Jacob's hope? Jacob's hope that this incident, that this interaction with God is a window into the very heart of God. That it's not just an errant story, but that it signifies something very pertinent, very real about who God is. What it says, that God will prevail, that God will conquer, by allowing men and women sometimes to prevail over him. When I wrestle with my kids, I have to hold back. I have to, I have to give them leverage. I have to become weak. Now, I could overpower them, but I choose not to. I choose to let them win in some ways. And frankly, as the kids have gotten older, that can hurt. <laughs> they can hurt me now, but I still have to hold back. I still have to fight with little leverage. God comes to Jacob and he makes himself weak. He could have beat him into the ground. He could have incinerated him with a glance. And yet he allows him to take hold of him. Because what does he want from Jacob? He doesn't want to pound him into submission. He wants to change his heart. And you don't do that by pounding someone. You do that by loving them, by being vulnerable with them by allowing them into your life. And that's exactly what God does. He became weak in order to win. 
in order to prevail. And it's not just this cute little paradox. It's pointing to the very heart of God and who He is with His people. You see, He'll come again as a man. Jesus comes as a man announcing that He is God in the flesh, and yet, where does He end up? On a cross, dying. God comes and dies. God comes and becomes weak. He submits to the power of sinful man. He holds on on the cross, but not to say, bless me, but bless you. You see, Jesus comes and wrestles with death. And as it overcomes him, he's not looking for the blessing for himself, but he's looking to bless you and I. God becomes weak for you and I. But here's the trick, and you can't get around this part, is that you must become weak in order to get Jesus' strength. His victory of weakness is given to those who are willing to say, who are willing to be like Jacob, be vulnerable before God and say, I am weak, I have no leverage, I need God, I need Jesus, you, to wrestle for me. I need you to take away my leverage, to take away my strength in order to be truly strong, in order to be made new. We prevail by being humbled. We win by being wounded. And this lies at the very heart of God. He is wounded for you so that you can be made whole. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you don't look down on us and just shout commands, that you don't just give us the law, that you don't just tell us what to do. We want to become people who follow you, who surrender, who repent, who value what you have to say to us and to our lives. And yet at the same time, we pray that it would be because we see you graciously descending the stairway, that you come down to our world, to our level, that you are wounded on our behalf. And Father, let that change the way that we even look at the law, that we look at what we're supposed to do, that we would serve out of gratitude, out of gratefulness. Father, as we end this worship service, I pray that you would turn us to you, that you would let us see our weaknesses and yet not dwell there, that we would dwell instead upon your grace and upon your strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.